As we heard this morning uh, from our scripture reading, we're actually going to be looking at a passage in Philippians. So if you guys have your Bibles, uh, feel free just to go ahead and open up there. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 to verse 4. Again, that's Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 to verse 4. On this idea of unity in a divided world. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about unity. I think it's something that's really relevant, uh, not just for our church, though it's always relevant for our church, but especially as we're thinking about evangelism and missions uh, this entire year. And when you think about unity, you might not think about evangelism or sharing the gospel, but it very much does apply as we're going to see in just a little bit. And I think it's important for us to look at this topic of unity because right now we're living in one of the most divided times in American history, right? And just look around, if you follow on social media, if you go on uh, Facebook or Twitter, you see how people are arguing over all sorts of different things. There's tons and tons of division uh, going on right now in America. And a lot of the areas of disunity that you see really don't matter that much, right? Uh, I remember a bunch of people arguing over what was the best Philly cheesesteak in Philadelphia. Uh, I was going last year just to visit a couple friends from college and being able to see my brother and sister-in-law who now live there. And, you know, just making small talk on the plane. And, and I mentioned how the fact that this was my first time going to Philadelphia and I really wanted to try a Philly cheesesteak because that's what they're known for. But lo and behold, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Because there, uh, you have turf wars over which cheesesteak is the best. Right? We're sitting there on the plane uh, as it's, as it's you know, getting uh, settled down and everything. And then the person next to me starts arguing with a random stranger in front of me because they had different favorite spots. Right? This person, had, they had no idea who the other person was. They had never met before. And yet you bring up a cheesesteak and they're going to go to war. Right? So a lot of the ways that we'll maybe argue and be divided over really don't matter that much. But I'm sure you can think of many ways that they do matter. And again, we're living in 2020. The next presidential election is this year, and people are going at it online, aren't they? Right? Both sides saying that the other is evil and that you know the, what it means to be a Christian is you have to argue for one political party or the other. And people are just so heated and divided over these issues. Right? You see division especially even in churches today, unfortunately. Right? People where maybe they say, I believe that so-and-so should be the head pastor. He's, he's the best preacher. Or you see people that maybe you get into some kind of argument, and then suddenly they're, they're uh, ignoring the other person for weeks at a time. Or once you do something just to rub someone the wrong way, suddenly you don't want to be around them. Or maybe you can think of a, an area of Christian liberty where people have um, the right and conviction to go one way or the other. And then suddenly people are judging others or ignoring people because they don't hold the same level of personal convictions. Right? I'm sure you can see a lot of ways how even in the church you see disunity and very toxic sort of disunity kind of bubbling up. But we know that disunity isn't something new in the church, right? This was a topic that was breached by the New Testament repeatedly. Right? You're looking at 1 Corinthians 1. And even in that church, Paul was worried about the disunity and the division that was happening so strongly, right? And he writes in 1 Corinthians 1.12, Each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Right? Even back in the first century, as soon as a church was formed, people already started forming lines. You started having your tribes, and I, I'm over in this camp, or I'm over in this camp. And immediately, the apostle has to say, stop, 
Be unified. Stop bickering. Be on the same page. In our letter, Philippians, if you look in chapter 4, you see how this letter was written in part because there were two women that were feuding, right? Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul says, you must be on the same page. And that is why you see as a repeated command in the New Testament, you hear the words, be unified. Be one. Don't allow your differences to divide you because you have everything in common in Christ. And that's exactly what our brother Tim was reading this morning, right? That's what you see as a key theme in Philippians in 1.27. He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Immediately in this letter to the Philippians, a church that didn't have huge doctrinal issues, there wasn't some serious heresy going on. But one of the key issues, one of the key dangers that Paul saw in the church was disunity. And as we're going to see, right, disunity isn't some small deal, but it's actually a gospel issue. Because whether or not we as a church can show the unity that we have spiritually has huge implications for how the world sees us and Jesus, right? I mean, you hear this in John 17, the high priestly prayer, how Jesus is praying for his disciples and he's praying for all the church as it will form in the future. And he says this in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Paul is pray, or Jesus is praying that his people, that we as Christians, that we would be united relationally together, that we would stand for as one body, because that is part of how the world will know Christ is true. It is through the unity of the church, the oneness of us as believers that stands as a testimony to all who would see and hear the gospel. And so therefore, whether or not we as a church can be unified, whether or not we show unity in how we treat one another, how we see one another here as family has huge implications for how people hear the gospel. I think about it. You can talk about how amazing Jesus is, the glories of salvation and the free gift that we have in God. And yet if you can't even love the person next to you, if you bring an unbeliever in here and they see that there's tension in the room, anything you say about the gospel is going to fall on deaf ears. And so therefore, our ability to be one, our ability to be unified is important. And what Paul is going to say is really an amazing truth in our passage here. What he's saying is this. He's saying live in unity because God has already united you. The reason that you can pursue unity, the reason that you should become one with those around you, the reason you can reconcile your differences is because in Christ, you've already been made one. You've already been brought into a family. You've already been connected with God and Jesus Christ and therefore with one another and therefore seek after oneness. What Paul is saying here is that unity is actually an active pursuit. Relational unity isn't something that just happens. 
It's not that, you know, when you become a Christian, something snaps, and then suddenly you just love everyone around you. But this idea of unity that Paul is striking at, the kind of unity, the relational oneness that we have to pursue is something that comes when we pursue it. When we make decisions and change our thinking and actions to love one another. And that's the focus of our text here as we're looking at these four verses. I'm just going to read it for you. Um, this will be reading from the ESV so you get a sense of both the NASB and the ESV. But again, we're reading from Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through verse 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I just realize how much we all fall short of your perfect standard, how weak I am personally, Lord, how weak all of us are. And so we pray that this morning you would give us clarity of understanding clarity of ears and clarity of heart that we may seek after you, that through our lives, how we treat one another, we may glorify your name. And so we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in this passage, there's a lot of ways to break it down, but we're going to see it like this. Two ways that we fight for unity. In this text, I think that you see two main ways that we as a church can fight for unity. How Paul is trying to articulate, he's trying to point out the ways of of division. He's trying to get at the heart. And he's saying, in light of that, here is how you must live. Here are the ways that you can fight for unity. And so in verse 1 and verse 2, you see this. Here's the first way that we seek it. Consider what we share in common. Consider what we share in common. The first thing that Paul is trying to say here is, Ling, look at what you have in common as Christians. Look at the spiritual truths, the things that you share with every single believer in your church. These are the things that bring you together. All right, so see what he's saying here in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... And as you guys heard, the ESV actually omits this, but there are four ifs after each one of these phrases, right? It's if there is any encouragement, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit. But the way that this grammar is done in the Greek is is the, the idea is Paul is assuming that these things are true. He's saying, I know that you have each one of these, and therefore here's the best way to read this whole sentence. Since you have encouragement in Christ. Since you have comfort from love, since you have participation in spirit, since you have affection and sympathy. And we see what Paul is trying to say is look at what you share as Christians. Look at what you have in common. And there's different ways you can interpret each of these phrases, but the idea is the same. Paul's trying to say this is what you share as believers. Or he's saying you have encouragement or you have help in Christ. 
That is in the midst of the trials and sufferings that they would have been going through, the hardships that we go through as Christians. We have an encouragement in Christ that Jesus helps us in the midst of the hardships that we go through. As difficult as this life may be, we have help from Jesus. He's saying also that you have comfort from love. That is, again, in the midst of all the hardships that you would go through, in the midst of the trials, you have experienced the love of God. That God's love has been on you. You have experienced it experientially. You know that he cares because of your salvation. Because you have salvation by grace through faith, you know the love of God that is in your lives. He says you have participation or fellowship in the Spirit. In other words, that because you are saved, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And that collectively the church is now the temple of God. That though you may on your own be sons of Satan, though you may be wicked on your own, you have now been brought through Jesus to God. You have become one as the temple of God. And therefore you have fellowship with one another in the Spirit. Through the Spirit's presence in you. Lastly, he says, you have affection and sympathy, or another way to say that is compassion. In other words, that they have experienced the affection and compassion of God in their lives. That we as Christians, we know that we don't deserve grace. We don't deserve anything except for hell. And yet, God has shown his compassion on us. None of us deserve our salvation, yet he has extended his love and his grace to us. And so what Paul is saying through this kind of staccato references is to say, look at what you share. Look at how God has worked in you in this amazing way in which you have all the blessings of our Lord. You see this in Ephesians 1, 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, God has given you everything as Christians. There is not a single spiritual blessing that he has withheld from you. He has given you everything. And that's the same idea of what you're seeing here in Philippians. You have everything. God has given you the participation of the Spirit. You have experienced his affection and sympathy. You have his love. And because of this, because of what you share in common as believers, be unified in the church. Right? He's saying, if or since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort and love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you guys see what Paul is doing here? He's saying in light of everything you have, in light of everything you share in common, be unified. Be of the same mind. That's a phrase talking about how you're thinking in the same way. And it was really an analogy for saying, be like-minded. Be together relationally with one another. Be on the same page. He says also, have the same love. In other words, be devoted in love to God and to one another. But it's not even like you have different kinds of loves for one another. It's a sense that you are sharing the same love. That because you've experienced the love of God, that is the love that you can now share with one another. And because you've experienced the love of God, you can learn to love those who you have nothing in common with. This is, of course, an agape love, right? 
It's a desire to love other people, not based off of emotion, not even based off of what you desire to do, but based off of a choice. It's a decision of the will that you have that kind of same love. Paul says next, be in full accord, or how it is translated in other places, be of one soul. That is the way that you treat other people. The way that you think about one another is not even just that you're different people. It's not even just that you have the same mind, but you have the same soul. Some people will say that this is referencing to the idea of emotions that you even desire emotionally to be one with other people. That might be true. But again, if you see what Paul is doing here, you see how all of these phrases, though it might be interpreted with some slight nuances, they all get at the same idea. And that you see this in this last phrase. He closes again with be of one mind. If you're looking at the NASB, you see how it's translated be intent on one purpose. But really, this is the same root verb as the first phrase, and therefore it should be translated the same. This is really kind of a recap or summary phrase. He's saying again, be of one mind. In other words, Paul is repeating in three or four different ways the same idea with different kinds of phrases. And hopefully you guys see what he's doing, right? He's saying, don't allow division to be present. Be together. Be of one mind. Have the same love. Be of one soul together. Be united because that is what you are in Christ. You have been made one. You have share all of these things in common. Therefore, be unified. And this is a command that you see throughout Paul's letters, right? You see this in 1 Corinthians. Let there be no divisions among you. You see this in Ephesians, walk in unity. You see this in Colossians, pursue unity, the bond of peace. In so many different ways and phrases, Paul is saying, be one. And again, I think that the logic here can seem a little bit confusing, right? You think, why would Paul preempt his call for unity with what he says in verse 1? Why would he talk about these things that we share in common, right? And the reason is exactly what you're seeing through Paul's logic. What brings the church together, one of the motivations for us to be united is knowing what we share in common. One of the things that helps us to pursue unity, that helps us to love one another, is understanding, knowing what it is that we share in common as believers. Let me give you an an illustration about this. You know, I've mentioned before how I was really involved in, in martial arts and taekwondo, right? I did this at a relatively high level. It was my sport. I spent a lot of my free time there, uh, even traveling for, for different things. And the interesting thing that you see in a lot of sports teams, and especially someone like Taekwondo, is you have a bunch of people come together that usually have nothing else in common, right? I mean, on one end, you had some people that were, you know, kind of seen as like the, the nerds or the geeks, right, in school, and yet they really have this desire for this martial art. And, and what happens in this kind of dojos or these schools is you have a bunch of people come together that share nothing in common. Right? Outside of the, the martial arts school, we had nothing in common. And yet, when it came to competitions, when it came to these, you know, the, these tournaments that we would go to, we came together as like a band of brothers and sisters. Or you go into these places where the tournaments are held, and you can feel everyone sizing you up. Right? You're just looking around to see who is the person that I'm going to have to compete against. And suddenly, we were all on the same page. Right? We had each other's backs. 
We would cheer for one another. We would comfort one another when, when someone lost or when something went badly. We had each other's backs. And so though we had nothing else in common outside of a school, because of Taekwondo, because of these competitions, we had everything in common. If you guys have been part of a sports team or some kind of group where you know that you have some kind of singular purpose, you know what this is like. Right? Where because of whatever it is that you were gathering around, you knew that you guys were together. And how much more so is this true for the church? That we share the greatest of things in common. It's not just an activity. It's not just a hobby. It's not some kind of just small inclination that we share together, but we have unity in the very God of the universe. Right? That we share all things together in Christ. We share the same spiritual realities together. There you see the same kind of idea in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. There Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, Paul here is saying, be unified. And listen to the reasons he says in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I was so confused by this passage growing up. But do you understand what Paul is saying here? He's giving us the reason for why we pursue unity. And he gives the commands, be unified in the spirit, maintain the unity of the spirit. And here are the reasons. You share one church. You have one spirit. You have one Lord. There's been one baptism into which you've been baptized. You have one God and father over all. Look at all these things which are one. Look at all these things in which you share. These are the seven strands which bind you together as Christians. These are the reasons that you can pursue unity. What Paul is saying in Ephesians and what he's saying here in Philippians is the church, we must be one because we have everything together in common. You have been united in God. You now share every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have now been made into a family. And family is a very common analogy, is it not, for the church? We have been brought together as one, people who have nothing in common. And think about this, right? Think about how different Jews and Gentiles were back in the day. They shared nothing in common. Their cultures were totally different. Their diets were totally different. The way that they saw the world was totally different. The the festivals they celebrated were totally different. And yet, what Paul is saying throughout his letters is that though they have nothing in common, Jew and Gentile are now one. Right? Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For he himself, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of a two so making peace. Do you guys see what Paul is saying here? Jews and Gentiles, people who have nothing in common, though they were separated by the law, they're now one in the church 
That there is not two churches based off of your cultural preferences. There is one body. And again, you see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That is that when you think about yourself, when you think about what it means that you're part of the church, you need to understand that all of us are now one. And we've been brought together into the same family. And this is not something that should be reason for division. See, the power of the gospel, the power of God is that we learn to love and care for people that we have nothing in common with. People that we share nothing together. And so I think what you're seeing here, what Paul is really trying to get at through these first two verses is really a theology check. See, how you understand theology how you understand the, the unity that you have with other people will influence how you treat one another. It will influence how you understand the idea of oneness. See, if you understand what it is that you share in common, if you understand how we've been brought into the family of God, you should understand how to pursue unity with one another. If you really hold your faith to be the most important thing in your life, if you understand the oneness of our faith, Paul is saying that you will learn to be one with the the people around you. But if there's anything in your life that you are secretly holding as your true number one, whether it's some kind of cultural preference, whether it's a Christian liberty, whether it's a belief about some kind of issue in life, if you really have something that's secretly your number one, you're not going to pursue unity. See, division comes when you're not holding faith as the most important element in your life. What Paul is doing in verse 1 and 2, the reason he starts by saying, look at what you share in common, is because that is what brings us together. That is why we should pursue oneness and love in the church. The problem, as we know, is that so oftentimes, most of the relationships that we have in church have nothing to do with God. You know, even though we might form a lot of our relationships in church, when you really break it down, we would get together even if God did not exist. This is what Mark Dever says. What often occurs, talking about relationships and friendships in the church, is often a demographic phenomenon and not necessarily a gospel phenomenon. Single moms gravitate to each other regardless of whether or not the gospel is true. This community is wonderful and helpful, but its existence says nothing about the power of the gospel. When Christians unite around something other than the gospel, they create community that would likely exist even if God didn't. As a modern-day Tower of Babel, that community glorifies their strength instead of God's. And here's what Dever is trying to say. This is the natural state for all of us in our relationships, right? Naturally speaking, we will form relationships with people based off of our preferences, based off of our personality, based off of shared values, based off of where you live, based off of your your hobbies. And all of these things are fine and good, but none of these things say anything about the gospel. What Dever's trying to say, and I think this is the danger for all of us, is that though we might say that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, with so many people, we still have a tendency to form tribes of our own. 
Right? Though we may say we are brothers and sisters in the church, though we may say we are a church, we form little churches within the church. Right? We form little groups based off of the things that we really, really like. And when someone doesn't have the same beliefs about us on very specific issues, what often happens is we cut them off. And it's never done in a way that's very explicit. Right? I've never heard a person say, yeah, I'm purposely choosing to ignore someone. But you see it all the time. Right? You know, you go into a room and you see how certain individuals are ignoring people because they don't have the same convictions on certain liberties as they do. They don't believe the same way that we do. They don't live the same way that we do. They don't parent their kids the same way we do. And so whatever the reason may be, you form these little tribes inside the church. And people choose to associate with only certain people instead of everyone. And trust me, I'm not saying that it's wrong to love certain people, uh, to have close relationships with some more than others. But the question, which I think you're seeing here in Philippians, and this is the, the really uh, thrust of our text here, is do you understand what it is that should be unifying you? Right? Do you have a posture saying, I want to love the people in the church? Or do you have a posture of saying, we think a certain way over here? What Paul is saying in these first two verses of Philippians is that the reason that we should pursue unity with one another, the reason that we can have close relationships with one another, comes when we consider what it is that we share in common. Paul is saying, this is what you have as believers. Therefore, be unified with one another. In other words, the unity that he's talking about here, it doesn't come from being naturally attracted to other people. It doesn't come because you share the same personality, but it comes from understanding that you've been joined together by Christ. That is what brings you together. Well, there's also a second way that we're supposed to pursue unity. This is what you see in verse 3 and verse 4. And I'm going to summarize it like this. Choose to serve others instead of yourself. Choose to serve others instead of yourself. All right, look at verse 3 with me. (coughs) Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, what Paul is saying is that how we treat people can either grow or hinder unity in the church. We all make decisions about how we treat people, and based off of how you treat them, that will either grow unity or it will disrupt unity. Now look at how he's trying to explain this, starting in verse 3. He starts off by telling us what not to do, right? He's saying, don't focus on yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And I think we all understand these terms very well, right? How we naturally do things from selfish ambition. We, we do things because we naturally want to please ourselves. That the way that we even think about relationships, the way that we think about a community, often is dictated by our selfish ambitions. And it's also dictated by conceit. It's the idea of pride. The, the, the literal translation is empty glory. The kind of belief that comes when you believe in your own importance. How strange would it be if I came up on the stage and my main message was trying to say, I am awesome. I am amazing, you guys. You have no idea how great I am. You understand how hollow that feels. But that's the idea of conceit. It's the idea of tooting your own horn. 
And so what Paul is trying to say in this first statement of don't be like this is this is our natural tendency. That our natural tendency in relationships is to be selfish and prideful, and that's what's going to cause disunity. And the danger, even as Tim was saying in his prayer, is that oftentimes this selfishness, this pride, is something that is so insidious. It's deceptive because we can't often see it. But let me give you two examples of how you see this, right? Here's how you see selfishness often come to play. And this might be something that's more common among younger people. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, someone will invite people to hang out. You know, you'll say, hey, we're going to do this on Saturday. Please come out. And then oftentimes what you hear among certain individuals is, who's going? Or you hear, uh, what, what are we doing? Or you hear, I'll let you know what my schedule is. And again, there could be very fine reasons for why you'd say any of those statements. I have said that a number of times. But often, what you're really saying behind those kinds of questions is, I'm not ready to commit yet. I don't know if I for sure want to be a part of whatever you're doing because I don't know if the right people are there. I don't know if I'm going to be entertained enough. I don't know if I'm going to enjoy my time. I don't know if you have the right people that I want to see. That is really the selfish heart behind those kinds of questions. And so really, oftentimes when you think about relationships, when you think about friendships, the underlying thing that you have is really ultimately selfish. Who do I want to be around? Who will I enjoy being around? Let me give you an example of how you see pride. And this really goes back to the tribalism sort of mentality that I mentioned before. See, what happens is Paul is explaining this is what you share in common. These are all the reasons why you should pursue oneness. And yet, though you've heard this passage many times, though many of us understand, at least intellectually, that we must be united— we still allow things to divide us. And ultimately, that comes from pride. It is pride to hear the call of God for unity and still choose to seek division. It is pride that tells you, I will not listen to what Paul or God is saying. I still want to live according to my own ways. We naturally are selfish and prideful people, and that is what leads to disunity in the church. And so Paul's solution, what you're seeing in verse 3 here, is you must do the opposite of that. He's saying your natural tendency, our natural tendency, is to seek after our own ways. Therefore, be intentional in lifting up others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You need to have a posture of humility If you want to see unity in this church, we need to have this posture where we say, I understand that I am nothing. One one commentator describes uh, uh, humility as this posture of the creature before the creator. That is that we understand our lowliness before God. We understand that there's nothing good in us. This is the posture of being poor in spirit, which you see in Matthew 5. And in that posture of humility, Count others more significant than yourself. And that's really an amazing idea, to count others. It's not just saying, just believe really hard. It's the idea that you've gone through a process of thought and you've come to a rational conclusion. 
What it means to count others greater than yourselves or higher than yourself is to say, I understand my own wickedness. I understand my own sinfulness. Therefore, I am no better than anyone else. This is the posture that we must have as Christians. And very practically, here's what it looks like. When you look at verse 4, what verse 4 is doing is explaining how you count others more significant than yourselves. And it's this. Look not to your interests, but to the interests of others. Very simply, the way that we can grow in unity, the way that we foster oneness in the midst of division is we choose to care for the interests of other people. You see this in Matthew 20, 26. But whoever will be great among you must first be the servant. In other words, the heart of a believer, the way that you see oneness form in the church comes when we have this posture. How can I serve other people? How can I lift up other people? How can I help other people grow spiritually? And here's, again, a very, very practical way. When you come to church events, how do you think about other people? Think about the different things you'll attend. Think about the Bible studies and the many ways that you'll interact. How often do you go into these gatherings with this mentality? I want to lift up other people. I'm going to attend this event. I'm going to go to this breakfast. I'm going to go to this missions luncheon, whatever it may be, with the goal of lifting others up spiritually. Because that is the mentality of a believer, which Paul is trying to say. And yet, I think it's something that all of us so fall short of. That so often we go to different church events, but really the the desires we have are selfish, right? We go based off of who we know will be there. We go based off of whether we're going to enjoy whatever experience it is that the event is. So often the mentalities for us even being in church has nothing to do with other people has nothing to do with God, but it's really about ourselves. And so this mentality is something that is so countercultural, and yet it is so needed. What Paul is saying is that the way that we seek unity grow, the way that we fight our tendencies towards selfishness and pride, is we must actively think about others. That we have to go into gatherings. That we come to church. We go to events with this heart. How can I lift up the person next to me? And I understand that this can be hard for some of us, especially if you're introverted, right? I mean, some of you know I am personally one of the most introverted individuals I know. The thing that I most look forward to about going to events is going home. I naturally just love silence, right? And I get it. There can be many reasons for why a lot of us don't want to see other people. Why we naturally like to be around certain individuals instead of others. And yet, we must work against our human nature. We have to choose through God's help, through the Spirit's empowering, to be others-minded instead of self-minded. To be outward-focused in our relationships instead of inward-focused. Because the natural human tendency as sinners is to be selfish. And therefore, we must pray diligently that God would help us to love people, to choose to put others' needs above ourselves. And what I love about Paul here, what I love about this passage, 
is that Paul is giving us the greatest motivation for why we can seek this kind of others-mindedness, right? And this is what Tim was reading before. This is verse 5 through 8. Right, Paul in verse 1 through 4 is explaining, this is how you seek after unity. This is how you seek to be others-minded. This is how you seek to be selfless. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? He's saying that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, though he was 100% God, he chose to not show his divinity to us. He chose to not use certain aspects of his divinity, and he became a man. He took the most humble of postures of becoming one, uh, uh, something that uh, he had created being a human being. And that Jesus, though he never lost his full divinity, he took on the form of a man, which was the lowest of the low. And that is the posture that we as Christians should emulate and strive after. That we would seek after the same posture of humility. That if the God of the universe would choose to lower himself in the humblest form of the way, how much more should we as his followers seek after the same posture? How much more should we as believers who are low, we are the creatures, seek to elevate others? So what Paul is saying is that Christian relationships, biblical relationships, are not about being inward. They're not about pleasing ourselves. They're not about seeking ourselves, but they're about serving other people. So I ask you, friends, is that your mentality this morning? When you think about how you relate to the church, when you think about how you relate to the people in this room, are you thinking not about yourself, but how can you serve other people? Because that is the posture of a Christian. And that is the posture which leads to unity. Again, think about what Paul is trying to say here. You must seek out unity in the church. And you must seek out unity because God has already united you. Right? He was saying in verse 1 and 2, all of the spiritual blessings that you share, you've been brought into one spiritual family. You have encouragements of God. You've experienced the love of Christ. Therefore, live as one. And then in verse 3 and verse 4, he was saying that our actions influence our attitudes, that we must seek unity by actually caring for people. And so that's where I want to leave our time off today, is reminding us that unity is not something that just happens on its own. That the kind of relational unity that we want to see in the church comes not by just thinking good thoughts, but it comes from deliberate actions. It comes from the collective decision of all of us in the church. That we, are, that we choose to say, I understand that we are made family, therefore we will live as family. We have been forgiven by, by God for everything, therefore we will love one another. And this is our call as a church. That we pursue oneness with one another. In the midst of something like this, I know that this seems daunting, doesn't it? You know, all of us can automatically think of people that we naturally have strong disagreements with, 
It could be about whatever the issues are. It could be about politics. It could be about family, philosophy, anything. We can automatically go to things and reasons that we think are reasons for separation. But in light of whatever those things are, we must remember the ultimate truths. That we share everything we need to be in common with one another. We have everything we need to pursue oneness. And therefore, we as a church must live as one. We must love one another as brothers and sisters. And you know, I, I read John 17 earlier, and, and I find that passage so comforting. Because right? as you think about this, it's difficult to love people that are different, isn't it? It's hard to look at someone that you have nothing in common with and say, you're my brother. And yet we know that we're not alone in this fight. What John 17 is, is Jesus praying for us. And what he's praying to the Father is that we would learn to be one, even as they are one. And therefore, as we seek after unity in our relationships, though it may seem so difficult, though it may seem so unattainable, though it may seem so hard, we can find comfort knowing that Jesus desires the same things, and he empowers us to pursue it. That we are not alone in this journey. We are not alone in this fight. But that God is the one who helps us. That as we pray every day, he is the one who empowers us. And as we're thinking about the theme of this whole year, as we think about this year of evangelism, this year of wanting to share the gospel, we have to remind ourselves of why we are doing this. And how, in how we treat people, we are pointing people to the gospel. That through our unity, we are pointing people to the power of God working in our lives. And therefore, we know that one of the reasons that we can seek after unity is because this is how we glorify God. We know that this is how we praise him, how we serve him, how we obey him, how we deny ourselves pick up our cross and follow after him. We do this because we are Christians and God himself is our God who helps us. So may we be a unified church, Calvary. May we pursue relationships and oneness together. And may you seek after those people that you've been avoiding, whatever the reason may be, and understand that you have everything you need in common in order for, to pursue oneness. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, as always, we just confess how powerless we are. We confess that in our own strength, we will always be selfish and prideful that we will seek after our own ways, that we will seek after our own tribes. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as a congregation to understand everything that you have given us, that you would help us to understand that we have been made into one church, which is the body of Christ, that we have been brought together through him, and therefore we have everything in common with one another. So help us, God, to be a people that seeks unity, that ends division, that seeks to love one another so that we may be representations of you on this earth. Help us, God, for we are powerless on our own. 
We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.